ought to be praying and feeling and so so concerned about one another. This helping them and stressing the fact that we can be of help and service to them is so important. Jesus, I, I want to I want to stop and think just for a moment. We're going we're going to be talking about the church, and we've missed two Wednesday nights recently. So let me kind of bring us up to date as to what we're talking about. I want us to go back to the Bible and to the New Testament especially and be able to find out exactly what the New Testament says about the church. How can we be the New Testament church? How can we be the church that Jesus established? And what does that mean to us? And that's really, that's really what we're trying to do. I'm, I'm reminded of a passage that Peter wrote, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. A passage that means so much. But you are a chosen generation. Who are you talking about, Peter? Every individual who has obeyed the gospel, who is a Christian, who is serving the Lord, you are a chosen generation. God has chosen you. These things are important for us to think about. Not only a chosen generation, you're a royal priesthood. When we think of a priest, you think of the priesthood, especially of the, uh, of the Old Testament. What do you think of? Somebody that's very, very special. That's what God wants you, wants you to think about you. You're a holy nation individuals brought together in an assembly that makes the body of Christ a chosen generation, a holy nation. And then he continues by saying, you're his, God's own special people. We like to be thought of as belonging to someone and and we as parents like to encourage our children to think you're somebody special, you're somebody great, and, and we want to stress that to them. But one thing that's important to us, or at least should be very important, is the fact that we're God's own special people. Why? That we might ought to be able to praise his proclaim his message, the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God's given us great things. God's brought us to a marvelous... I want, I want to stop for a moment and let you kind of get something in your mind. We use the term God is all-knowing, omniscient. And we, we, we have trouble really kind of comprehending and understanding that. When God created this world, He knew what was going to take place. We don't know what the future holds. God does. And when He put Adam and Eve in that Garden of Eden, He placed in that Garden of Eden a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that tree, He said. 
Why did he put it there? All of the other trees of the garden they could eat, why did they put one tree there and tell them, don't do it, don't eat of that? Because God wanted man to have the power of choice. You and I have the power of choice. Every action we take is a choice we make. And we have the responsibility of making the right kind of choices and we're going to find the result of a choice. Every choice we make has a result. It may be good, it may be bad, it may be indifferent. But it's a choice. You see, God didn't want robots. Somebody who just automatically served Him without any thought or without any preparation. He wanted you. He wanted me to selectively choose Him and serve Him because that's what we choose to do. That's what we want to do. Now I want you to picture something else as we think about this and think about God's great knowledge, understanding. Realize something that God planned before the world was ever established. How He was going to make redemption available for man. We know sin's going to separate us from God. God didn't want us to be separated from Him, and He's going to provide redemption for us. And so He's down through the pages of time as we go through the Old Testament. We can see how He has planned the church. Planned redemption for us. Planned a way for us to find forgiveness. To make ourselves right with God. And I want to, I want to spend some time tonight really just thinking about that. Jesus Christ really brought about we don't understand this, and we really can't comprehend it. But in Galatians, it tells us when the, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. What made it the fullness of time? It was part of God's plan. And when the time was right for that plan to be fulfilled, Jesus came into the, into the into this earth. He was born, made like you and I. You see, we need to understand Christ and we need to understand what brought Him into this world and what brought about the change in the way that worship was performed in the church today from what it was ancient times ago. Christianity applied the key. Ideas identified with worship and religion in the ancient world to Jesus Christ. Christ fills for Christians all these functions. Now, Christianity involved a major change in the, in the idea of worship in the ancient world. If we look back, and all of you have to some extent, and you're somewhat aware of how the world used to worship, we understand that to worship to the Greeks and to the Romans involved 
and even the Jews as well, involved an altar, it involved a temple, it involved a priesthood, and it involved a sacrifice. Now, think about those things for a moment. You see, when these, this worship was performed correctly according to their thoughts, a sacred place belonging to the deity, a, 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 usually including a temple, a house, or something of that nature, some kind of cult statue that was the focus of their worship, and an altar where that sacrifice was made. You know, as we think about it, an altar is something that's indispensable to a sanctuary. According to the Old Testament, according to the old worship of the world, they had to have an altar. They had to have some grounds, some holy grounds upon which they, they would be dedicated to the deity they were worshiping. You see, the central point of their worship was that sacrifice. A common word for, in the Greek for altar literally means a place of sacrifice. Not every sacred site, not every sanctuary had to have a temple, but they had to have an altar. They had to have that place of worship. They had to have that place of sacrifice. And then, secondly, there was a temple there. An altar was located outside of the temple, usually near the entrance, and the sacrifice did not occur inside the temple. It occurred outside. The temple was located at a, at a holy place, not necessarily for the convenience of worshipers. It was not a place of assembly for the worshipers. Rather, it was the house of the deity. They assumed that statue that was placed there was God, and they put him in that temple, and that temple was dedicated to that worshiper or that deity they were worshiping. There might also be associated with that temple some storage chambers or some rooms, uh, treasure rooms, in which the gifts that were brought for that worship, to worship that deity were kept. And then there were also priests. Priests were in charge of the sanctuary. They were attendants at the sanctuary. The worshiper himself might perform the, the, the sacrifice, but the priest knew the proper rituals, and especially if it was activity of some kind of major festival, they were there to be sure it was performed perfectly, correctly. And then there was the sacrifice. You know, Worship in that ancient world was an offering to that deity they assumed was a god. This sacrifice might involve killing of an animal or part of it which might be burned or 
maybe part of it given to, to, to be eaten, part of it given to the priests and uh, given to them, so they had food as well. And then there was a, a burning of the grain offering or a burning of food stu- other food stuff, the incense, or they pouring out of a drink in sacrifice to that deity. The sacrifice was offered on an altar. Or in the case of a large animal, which they were offering as a sacrifice, in, in proximity to that altar, it would be large, uh, placed somewhere else, and then a symbolic part of that animal brought and offered on that altar. The Jewish temple, now I've gone through some of these things where these were just old world ideas. But do you realize the Jewish temple had those four elements as well? The Jewish temple included them, so Romans were able to recognize Judaism as a traditional religion. It had the same acts, the same altar, the same temple, the same priest, the same sacrifice, same ideas at least, offered there. None of these things was, none of these things are visible in Christianity. And so the Romans had great diff- grave difficulty recogni- recognizing Christianity as a religion. You know, they, they didn't understand that. that. That that was a factor that complicated the church's relationship with government in transforming those ideas. These these ideas. Uh, was realizing the simple fact that Christianity was not altogether an innovator. God's plan was to bring man into the idea of worship. And we're going to see in just a few moments where that leads. You see, Christianity consistently spiritualizes these ideas. Pagan philosophers didn't. In the Old Testament, they didn't either. But then I want you to see Christ, the center of worship. And concerning that temple, although the book of Hebrews places some unique things concerning the temple, places the temple in heaven, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. Gospel of John identifies Christ Himself as the temple. In John chapter 2 and verse 19, remember Jesus saying, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. Well, the Jews understood this, that He was talking about the physical structure that they call their temple in Jerusalem. But John, from the perspective of a post-resurrection comment explained in verse 21 that he was speaking of the temple of his body. So Christ's body was itself a temple. It was killed. After three days, it was raised again. The resurrection was the foundation of a new community 
a spiritual temple. Now that's kind of to get ahead of ourselves here. Think about the sacrifice. We, we know the altar's there. We know the temple is there. We know the sacrifice is there. And we know the priesthood is there. But I want you to, I want you to focus with me on that sacrifice for a moment. In addition to being priest who offers the sacrifice, Jesus is himself the victim that is sacrificed. You see, he is the once for all atoning sacrifice for sin. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 26 says he's appeared once for all at the end of the age to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. And again, the author of Hebrews continues in verse 10, And it is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Did you catch what he said? We have been sanctified. We have been made holy. How was that that we were made holy? Through the offering of Jesus for the sacrifice of sins, after which we're told that he sat down at the right hand of God, according to verse 12. All the sin offerings of the Old Testament, all of those animals that were sacrificed. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read some of those Old Testament uh, chapters and read about the hundreds and even thousands of animals that were offered in sacrifice, causes my eyes to get a little bigger. I have a little trouble comprehending all that's going on there. One person, Jesus Christ, came and offered himself as a sacrifice that took away all of those sacrifices. All the need for that kind of thing so that we could come to him and find redemption. He offered his blood. He offered himself, thus obtaining eternal redemption for us. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12 says, With his sacrifice, the whole system of atonement in the Old Testament is brought to a close. God had prepared the minds of man, first of all, to permanently understand that sin must be atoned for. I don't care whether it was the, the old world prior to the Jew, Judaism, Judaism, Judaistic world. I don't care whether you're talking about some of the Gentiles or talking about the Jews. They all understood the sacrifices that was going to be made to what they called God or according to the Old Testament law, sacrifices had to be made for sin. The Old Testament even talks about sin separating us from God. You see, not only was that whole Old Testament brought to a close, Jesus Christ made superfluous all the animal sacrifices that were given. We wouldn't do that today because we know that Jesus has fulfilled that as the perfect sacrifice. Jesus 
made that and other material sacrifices as of, of the Mosaic dispensation over. They're all gone. They've been dealt the end as far as they're concerned. For the moment, I think we can kind of summarize what's being said at this point by observing that Christ has fulfilled what worship meant in the ancient world. His body that was resurrected is the temple. He is the priest offering himself as a sacrifice in the heavenly temple. And then I want you to see Christians united with Christ. Turning from consideration of Christ, I want us to give attention now to ourselves, to Christians. One of the most amazing and wonderful teachings of the New Testament is that Christians are incorporated into Christ. Have you ever thought about it this way? We're not just, uh, as we think of the word Christian, we think of someone who follows Christ. No, it's more than that. When we think of Christianity, we're talking about individuals who are in Christ Jesus. You see, we're so united with Him that in some sense we become what He is. Not, not physically, but spiritually. You see... It's not in a physical way. It's in the status and the privileges that we gain by being there. Early in the book of Hebrews, the basis of this teaching is given. Christ has become what we are. He identified Himself with us. This is the theme of Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. He came for a purpose, that he might be like us, and that we might be like him. And in verse 14, we just read, and verse 17, rather, he says, therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters. Maybe, maybe, may I add something to that? That he became like you and I in order, in, in, in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Why was he made? Why did he come here in physical, as a physical being, a fleshly being, made like you and I with the same problems, the same difficulties, the same understanding that we have? Why? In order that he might be a faithful high priest in service to God. These statements explains a little bit more. When we read back in verse 11, the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are one. We don't often think of it this way. 
But I want you to understand something. When you became a Christian, you became one with Christ. It's not I that lives any longer. It's Christ living in me. It's not you living any longer. It's Christ living in you. We hope that people, even seeing our physical person, might be able to see Christ. That's why we're to let our light shine. That's where, why we're to do good to all. That's why we're to reach out to others so that they might see the glory of God in us. He became one of us. The idea of solidarity to Christ with His people is expressed again. We read it uh, that he is, the, he, he is actually the temple. John in chapter 15 and verse 5 says, I am the vine and you are the branches. We're one. We're one. The vine is useless without the branches. The branches are useless without the vine. You can't separate the two. They have to be together. Not only that, Christ speaks of... Uh, 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 First Corinthians chapter 12, brother, speaks of Christ as the body and Christians as members of that body. Now we, we can think, and Paul used the physical body to illustrate that, did he not? A physical body that would illustrate it by the hands or the eyes or the ears or the, or, or the tongue or, or whatever. The hand wouldn't say to the feet, I'm not of the body. They're part of that body. So are we part of that body. Remember what Christ is. We are. Christians are. By reason of being joined to Him. Now in a similar way, even as Christ is the temple, and He said that particular passage in, in that, I, he, he said again in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19, Do you not know that your body, do you not know that your body is a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? We don't often think of that. That's not something that we emphasize so much. Perhaps we should. We don't. Because we ourselves are the body of Christ. When, he, when 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, he, he speaks of that. He says that, do you not know your body's temple of the Holy Spirit? He speaks of the bodies of individuals, those of us personally in Christ Jesus. You were bought with a price. What was the price? that bought you the blood of Jesus Christ. We like to think every Lord's Day in remembrance of our Lord and the agony and the pain and the misery that He endured. But sometimes we forget to ask why. Why did he do that for me, for you, for individually, every one of us? 
And until we get to the point where we can comprehend that, when we can really feel that presence, that Jesus died for me, we have trouble really identifying with who he is. The predominant usage in the New Testament, however, is for us to speak as does 1 Corinthians 3.16. The church is the temple of God. Ephesians 2.21 and 22 says, In Christ the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also you are built together into a dwelling place for God. Remember what a temple was in the ancient world. It was a house where they had their deity, whatever they had. It, ha it housed that cult statue. It wasn't a place of meeting. It wasn't where Judaism and, and all the other individuals assembled. It wasn't a significant building that made, made a, as we think of the church house today, as a place we can all come together and assemble. It wasn't that at all. In the temple that was built in Jerusalem, there was no statue there. It symbolized the presence of God with His people. The temple language in the New Testament bears the same meaning. The temple is a dwelling place of God. Only that temple is not a physical structure. It is a community of people. Can you put this in your mind and understand what we're saying? It's a community of people. The church is where God's presence dwells, especially where God's presence is manifested to the world. Not in a building, not in a physical structure, but in the lives of those who have committed themselves to Him and are serving Him as He wishes. Remember that that physical structure could never serve as the community of people. The church is where God's spirit, where His presence is manifested very evidently in the world. He dwells with His people through the spirit that is within them. Even as Christ was the temple of God among people, so now Christ's people through their union with Him become the temple of God in which He lives. The passages in Ephesians stresses that this occurs in Christ by saying twice that it's in Him. That temple is in Him. That the whole building is joined together. That we're built into God's dwelling place. Not only are we the temple in Christ, but through union with Him we become a priesthood. He's the high priest. We know that. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 5 that we read at the very beginning induces three of the four concepts of the ancient world. It tells us about ourselves being built up into a spiritual house. That house was the regular word in the ancient world for temple. 
to a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. Three of those four things mentioned right there. And according to Revelation 1 and verse 6, Christ made us to be a kingdom, priests serving His God and Father. He made us to be that. We read a moment ago that we're a priesthood. We read a moment ago now that we are priests serving that God. You built yourself up into that kind of thing. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. According to that revelation, we're, called not, we're not just called priests, but collectively we form a priesthood. You see, individual Christians are not called priests in the New Testament. But collectively, they form a priesthood. And they are a priesthood because they are united to Christ, who is the high priest. And as a priesthood, Christians have spiritual sacrifices to offer. But let us hold the development of that point for just a little while later, and I'll talk about it some more later on. I want you to think with me for a moment about the meaning of Christian worship. The facts that Christ fills the functions of the altar and temple, priesthood and atoning sacrifice for Christians, and that these functions are extended to you and I as Christians in a spiritual sense with our union with Christ, and we've often ignored that. I plead with you tonight to think about the greatness that God, Christ has given you by the offering of His sacrifice of Himself on that cross to make it possible for you to be God's chosen people, for you to be a royal priesthood, for you to know the great sacrifices that, that God wants you to offer. That's so important. You see, as human beings, we keep trying to return back to that pagan form of worship. Old Testament models for the holy place and the priest and certain actions to appease God. Nevertheless, the spiritual interpretations of worship and religion in the New Testament have some important consequences for us. It has important consequences for how Christians view their worship and their religious life. In order to warn us against returning to old ways of thinking, let me think for a moment about the consequences in which these same terms have been presented and have presented the elements of worship in the pagan world in the same order in which we've already discussed them. Christians have no sacred place. Think about this now. We have no sacred place. We have no material, no physical temple or earthly altar. Jesus addressed this subject in talking with the Samaritan woman, if you remember, in John chapter 4. The woman raised the question with Jesus observing that her ancestors had worshipped on this mountain and, 
And you Jews say we ought to be worshiping in Jerusalem. But Jesus replied in John 4, 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming in which you will worship the, the Father neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You're not going to worship like that. It's not going to be a physical th place. We're not worshiping this building. We're not worshiping a physical structure of some kind. In spite of so many churches today calling their meeting places a sanctuary, which means a place that is made holy. No, Christians have no special sacred place. No sanctuary. In addition, auditorium may not be a good term to describe our place of meeting. It would be better to say simply say meeting house. For the building as a whole, or, a, or perhaps a meeting room, or assembly hall, for the specific place of gathering. You see, the word church is from, as we've noted before, from ecclesia, which means an assembly, a gathering together, where individuals are called into an assembly hall, or, or a place where they can meet together for a specific purpose. Governments and all kinds of people had those kinds of callings. If the Caesar wanted to pass a, a law, he sent out spokesmen. Used to call it town criers here in, in uh, early days of our country. Didn't have phones like we have, didn't have television, didn't have all this kind of thing to, to speak to one another. But the town crier would come. He's the one who called people out and, and told them what was taking place. That's the assembly. That's what the, church, the word church means. You see, there is no place for the language of altar or the item of furniture within a meeting place. Christians themselves are the temple. Christian themselves. The New Testament puts no emphasis on the place of meeting. If you read through the book of Acts, you're going to find many times they were meeting in homes. Might have been the house. Sometimes it was in the synagogue. Paul's habit as he traveled would be to find a synagogue because it was customary for the ruler of the synagogue at that particular place, if somebody came in, would you have something to say for the people? Stand and tell us. Paul took that opportunity to preach the gospel and did it well. Wherever the community gathered, God was there in the New Testament times. Holiness was in the people, united with Christ, not in the place where they worshipped. Not in the place where they met. Their meeting at a place imparted no special sanctity to that individual place apart from the meeting itself. And then notice something else. Christians have no sacred times. Let me very briefly talk about that. There are no holy days. 
There are no seasons as far as our service is concerned. Paul in Colossians 1 and verse 16 draws from the cancellation of the debt of sin by reason of the cross the following conclusion. He says, Therefore do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food or drink or observing festivals, new moons or Sabbaths. And he refers to three kinds of religious services of Judaism. Annual festivals, monthly new moons, and weekly Sabbaths. Romans 15, 14, verse 5 and 6 probably refers to differences among Jews and Gentile worships in, in their estimate of the Sabbath. Some judge one day to be better than another. Others judge all days alike. Let all be fully convinced in their own mind, he said. Those who observe the day, observe it in honor of the Lord, according to Galatians uh, 4, verse 9 through 11. Uh, observing special days, special months, seasons of years is becoming enslaved again to the weak and beggarly elements of the world. We need to be careful. Realizing first of all God has given us a great special blessing. Redemption. Chosen people, royal priesthood, priesthood, a holy nation, the church. Church people. Church is people, not physical structures. Bow with me for a moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to you for your blessings today. We cannot begin to express our gratitude for the great goodness, mercy, kindness, and grace that you've shown to us. We're so thankful for Jesus and the great sacrifice that he made, paying the price for our sins. Help us always be the guiding light for our world today, Father. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.